Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Todd Treseder. He is a financial journalist and also the financial coach at financialmentor.com and author of many books on the subject of retirement planning. Welcome to the show, Todd. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks for having me. Let's just get your history a little bit and uh, how you kind of got started in this field and uh, how you were able to retire at 35. So just kind of give us a little bit of your history here. Yeah, first of all, that was long ago for people listening. I'm 57 as we record this. So obviously retiring 35 was a few years ago. Um, when I came out of college, I wanted to be financially independent. And I had this, and a lot of people do, but I had a different viewpoint on it, which was I decided I was serious about it and I would engineer an approach to it. And part of that was realizing that I had to become an investment expert. So then I developed or I, I directed my career towards the hedge fund industry, which back then wasn't even in existence in terms of hedge funds. That term hadn't been created. We were all called private placement partnerships way back when. Um, and then later on, they were glorified with the term hedge funds. And so that was how I cut my teeth. I developed um, computerized and algorithmic risk management systems for the financial markets. And so that was where I started learning a lot of the principles that I teach today. Okay. And so why is it that retirement and retirement planning is what you're so focused on? Why do you think that's so important for people to learn about? I think it's the most life-changing issue I can work with, which is, you know, with retirement planning, I think retirement's a, a horrible word because it brings up, you know, conjures up ideas of endless rounds of golf and reading novels and laying in a hammock, drinking umbrella drinks on a tropical beach. And what I really think about is financial independence at any age. You know, so for me, I quote unquote retired at 35. Really what I did was I chained a certain level of financial independence at age 35, which I then used to create whatever life I want for the remainder of my life. And I think that's what this game is really about, is financial independence at any age. And it just happens that it's under the category of retirement planning or wealth building. And so that's what I work within. But I'm really about helping people attain financial independence so they can use it to create a more fulfilling life. So it sounds good, but how many people actually can create financial independence compared to what people think? They think you have to work, build up a pension fund, you know, you, you drop dead, or you, you know, you drop from exhaustion. The idea of financial independence sounds good, but how many people can actually achieve something like that? Um, most. Surprisingly, it's very accessible. The difference, though, Jordan, is you have to be willing to pay the price, right? So you have to want it enough to do what it takes to get it. So if you, so let me give an example, okay? Every dollar that comes through your life is going to get spent. It's just a question of where you spend it. If you're focused on financial independence, you're going to focus on growing assets, and so you might save it, you might use it to build a business, you might use it to acquire real estate. You're going to use that dollar to acquire assets and grow uh, income-producing assets. If your focus is lifestyle today, then you're going to use it to buy designer jeans or the latest electronic device, and then eventually those things wear out and they're gone. And so everybody can attain, not everybody, but most people listening to your show or, or going to my website have the ability to attain financial independence. It's the rare individual that doesn't. It's just that... It requires a focus, and you have to be willing to pay the price to get there, because there are trade-offs you have to make. Now, one of the things you say is that people's biggest asset is one they don't really realize, which is their own earning power. Is that right? Why do people underestimate their own earning power? 
It's the spread. One of the key characteristics or one of the key numbers, there's two key ratios that you have to have to build financial independence or that determines your financial outcome in life, I think is a better way of saying it. One of them is your return on investment net of inflation, right? So that one's a whole complicated issue we probably don't have time for in this interview. The other one that we can get to, which you you alluded to in your question, is your savings rate as a percentage of your total earned income. And so the idea is that financial independence is a multiple of your spending needs. And so when you reduce your spending needs, you not only increase your savings rate as a percent of your income, but you reduce the amount of assets you have to acquire to support those spending needs. And so looking at raising your income is another way of creating the spread, right? So there's two angles you can go. You can either reduce your spending needs or you can increase your income. So using me as an example in my life, I worked in the hedge fund industry early in life. I made a lot of money. And so for me to save 70, 80% of my income was not hard. I really didn't have to sacrifice. All I had to do was make sure I didn't allow lifestyle inflation to occur. And so it was very easy for me to save that high percentage of income and retire very quickly. And so you can do it two ways. You can either focus on your earning capacity, increase those earnings so you still save a high percentage of your income, or you can focus on controlling your expenses. Or if you're really smart and really aggressive, you can do both. So on the expense side, people kind of lock themselves into certain expenses, whether it be their mortgage or their car payment or their kids' tuitions or whatever. What are some major ways that people can cut expenses without hurting their lifestyle in a major way? Well, the first thing we have to do is recognize that people aren't locked in. They're in these situations because they chose them and they can choose back out of them. And again, this gets in that question of what price you're willing to pay. And different people are willing to pay different prices. I have no right wrong on it, right? If you want to be financially independent in seven or 10 years and do it from a normal W-2 income, you're going to have to pay some prices. There's trade-offs you're going to have to make, right? So let's just take the mortgage as an example. Um, there's a guy on the internet, um, Jacob Lund Fisker, who has Early Retirement Extreme as the website. And you know, I think he was financially independent on like $7,000 a year. And this guy was no slouch. I, 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 Again, I may be messing this up, but he had very advanced education. He's a very smart guy. And he just decided he didn't want to have to work for the man, right? And so he reworked his finances really tight. He lived out of a motorhome, right? Okay, and okay. did all kinds of things to where he got his spending down ridiculously low. I'm not advocating that, but I'm pointing out these are different possibilities. Like if you're looking at retirement, you can look at different ways of living. You can be traveling around in an RV. You could um, traveling internationally is less expensive. Living internationally is less expensive. A lot of these things that we assume are givens that we're stuck with because of the American lifestyle is not true. There are ways to work around them. You're saying that people have choices when they they don't think they have choices in many cases in order yeah. to become independent. Yeah, exactly. A lot of these things that we think of are given just because we're so used to them, we don't question them anymore, are actually not givens. They're they're things that you can choose differently on. And that's one of the things that separates people who attain financial independence at earlier age is they have very independent thinking. Um, they don't suck into traditional thinking and all the consumer spending attitudes that enslave people. A lot of people talk about a retirement income crisis, that a lot of people are getting to their 60s and 70s not having saved either hardly enough or in many cases anything at all, living on Social Security, maybe some pensions, although that's fading. Is that correct or is, or is that kind of an overstatement of the situation? 
Oh, gosh. I mean, we could do a whole podcast on that, right? Because there's smart people on both sides of the fence. I think in some ways it overstates um, because a lot of times they'll document like linear savings rates when the, the bulk of the savings occurs in the final 10 years of a person's career. You know, there's a lot of things that question whether or not those that data is legitimate. Um, but the fact is people are, are generally undersaved, right? It's not, I, I think, I think it's both to answer your question. I think that there's legitimacy to the data being provided and the challenge that's being provided for people to save and build more wealth. Um, but I also think that sometimes it's overstated because it serves the pension industry. It serves the retirement planning industry to get people to, you know, fear and save more. So part of it is they're undersaved and part of it is they're under returning, right? That they're having their money in CDs and money market funds and bonds where they have very low returns. That's a common, that's also leading to the problem. Is that right? That's correct. And also there's another piece of the problem, which is people are stuck in paper assets, right? So paper assets being stocks, bonds, mutual funds, ETFs that a financial planner can sell you. And oftentimes you can attain financial independence much quicker. And the math actually works a little differently when you work with alternative assets like direct ownership, real estate, or business entrepreneurship. So a lot of people are not familiar with alternative assets. We're going to go into that in more detail because the financial planners don't have an incentive to tell you about them. Is that the reason? Yeah, it's trying to stay away from conspiracy theory, but yeah, they don't get paid if you fill your portfolio with alternative assets, right? They get paid with the stocks, bonds, and mutual funds they can sell you. Um, but that's not, you know, I'm not, there's there's really good financial planners out there. I'm not trying to come down on the financial planning profession. Um, there's people who are doing their level best to serve their clients. Um, and they, a lot of them have limited knowledge. They have limited experience. They have limited training or they're trained by the company they represent. And of course, they get paid to sell the paper assets that their company offers. Yeah, so there is a conflict of interest there to some extent. Um, yeah, I yeah. would agree. I would agree with that. Tell people a little bit more about what they can find at your website, financialmentor.com. Oh, God, the resources are huge. I've got one of the largest collections of financial calculators on the internet, um, all free. I've got thousands of printed pages, content, all for free, all educational. I'm known for very detailed, long body and analytical content. I'm really, I'm kind of the higher end of the market in terms of I'm not, you know, 10 tips to save money. That's not where I'm at. I'm the guy that's teaching you advanced wealth planning, advanced retirement planning, uh, stuff to attain financial freedom. I also have paid courses and I have books for people that want to take the next level. And do you take clients on yourself and helping them with retirement planning? No longer. I was in the good position, Jordan. I had excessive demand. I was. I never wanted to get rich off of coaching. Coaching to me was always getting to know my target market. And the demand was so high because the business has been successful that I started raising rates to $600 an hour. And then I just started getting rich clients and the whole thing didn't really serve the business. So I, I ended up cutting off my coaching and now I'm strictly doing product-based education so I can reach more people at a better price point. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Todd Tresseter. He's the author of several books on retirement planning. His website is financialmentor.com. We'll be back after this. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. 
We've all been there, struggling to keep up with credit card payments, searching for a simpler, safer way out of debt. Well, here it is. Cambridge Credit Counseling is a nonprofit service that has been helping people reduce or eliminate their credit card debt for over 20 years. Most of us have made late payments and even gone over our credit limits. Before we know it, our balances are out of control and we can barely afford to make the minimum payments. If this sounds familiar and you're ready to take control of your debts, call Cambridge right away at 1-800-897-2200 for a debt-free analysis. Cambridge will work with your creditors and may be able to reduce your interest rates and get you out of debt fast. In fact, Cambridge's typical debt management clients save almost $150 every month on their credit card payments, and they're debt-free in just 50 months. So there is a simpler, safer way out of debt, and it all starts with Cambridge Credit Counseling. Call 1-800-897-2200 for your free debt analysis. Cambridge Credit Counseling is a Massachusetts-based nonprofit agency providing services nationwide. For complete licensing information, visit them online at cambridge-credit.org. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Has your small business been turned down for a loan by the bank? Is lack of capital hindering your business growth? Small businesses unable to obtain bank financing or tired of merchant cash advances can now get the financing they need. Corporate Lending Solutions provides short and long-term capital, revolving lines of credit, and unsecured business loans. Does your business need help with payables, supplies, or payroll? Corporate Lending Solutions has powerful programs to help. While getting a small business loan can be a long, daunting process, with Corporate Lending Solutions, it's simple and takes only one to three days. Call 800-261-6478 or visit CorporateLendingSolutions.com to learn more. 800-261-6478. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Todd Tresseter. He's a financial journalist. He's also a financial coach at financialmentor.com. Welcome back to the show, Todd. Thanks, Jordan. So you've got a book called How Much Money Do I Need to Retire? So there are various ways of figuring that out. So maybe why don't you go over briefly the different ways to figure out while you're still in your working life how much capital you need to attain to have, as you say, financial independence. Yeah, so the whole reason that book came into being was I ended up coaching people on the same stuff over and over and over again, right? So this was, how much money do I need to retire? You're well aware of this is just something that's not well understood in the industry. So there's traditional models, and then there's a deeper understanding that we can go into here. So let's just kind of start with the traditional model. You've got things like the 4% rule and safe withdrawal rates in retirement, and that manifests out into really simplified rules of thumb that are workable, but they're not totally accurate. So let's just start with them and point out why we want to know them. So you've got the rule of 25, which is the reciprocal of the 4% rule, right? 25 times four equals 100. Um, and then you, so that what the rule of 25 is, is that it's 25 times your annual spending 
in retirement, so you'd figure out your annual spending. But to bring that more to home for people, you can, because most people think in terms of monthly spending, is you can do the rule of 300, which is basically 25 times 12, right? And so the idea here is that for every $1,000 that you spend in retirement, you need roughly $300,000 in assets to support it using a traditional asset framework, right? A traditional asset allocation framework. Um, and if you want to be more conservative, you can get closer to the 3% rule, which is you're spending 3% of your assets in retirement, which works out to the rule of 400, just to keep a round number. So that means that for every $1,000 you need in retirement, you need roughly, or every $1,000 you spend per month in retirement, you need roughly $400,000 in assets. So those are the rough approximation rules of thumb that people can grab and just do on the back of a napkin right off the top of their head. And the neat thing about them, Jordan, is they're useful enough to do, right? They're not really dead wrong, but they're not what you want to base your retirement on. You want to get more accurate when you actually get down to retirement planning. But in order to just get started and have like what we'll call a true North Star, something to point towards, something to work toward, they're very useful for that. So uh, what rate of return, are? say you do that, say you have 300 times, what rate of return are you assuming people in retirement are going to be able to earn in their money to produce the income to, to live with that lifestyle? Well, the rate of return is assumed historical, right? So you're going to look at, depending on how you crunch the numbers, if you include inflation or you include uh, dividends, that type of thing. But ballpark, it's 8% is the 8%, historical so rate that, of return. That's much higher than you're going to get in fixed income or bank instruments today. I'm sorry, 8% for the stock market, but then in the fixed income side. So you'd have a traditional 60-40. Most of the research done shows you want to be closer to like an 80-20 allocation, 80% to stocks, 20% to bonds, um, is what most of the research shows is a more stable portfolio, even though it's more volatile. So um, if but you're, in retirement, better, what's if you're that? in retirement, you've got an 80-20 mix and you have a bear market, it could be a real problem for you. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and that's why we go into other models and use other asset classes in in the stuff I work with. I'm just giving you the traditional point as a yes. starting point, right? So sure. a good way to understand this, Jordan, for everybody listening, is that there's really two fundamentally different models here in retirement planning. And the traditional model is what I'll call an asset-based model. And the asset-based model is the premise is you're going to save like a dog, scrimp and save for 40 years during your career so you can build this big nest egg, this big pile of assets. And then you're going to do nothing of substance for the remaining 30 years of your life while you spend down those assets. Yeah. And, and that's the traditional model, right? And that's what we're talking about here when we're talking about like 4% rule, rule of 25, rule of 300, traditional asset allocation. All those assumptions are built into that traditional asset-based model. Now, there's another approach. See, I retired at 35. I can't do an asset-based model because my lifespan is so long after post-retirement that there's no safe way to amortize the assets. See, the assumption is you build the assets up and then you amortize them through spending and people intuitively get that. It works like a mortgage. Mortgage, right? Yeah. Where you're amortizing your base of assets as you spend from principal. The problem is once you get over about 20 years, the amortization equation in with the volatility of the markets is unstable. And so you enter a lot of risk of running out of money before you run out of life. And so that's one of the limitations of the traditional plan is it requires so many assumptions about things that can't be safely predicted in the future. And it requires such a long time horizon because people are living longer now that it's it's fundamentally unstable. And so what it does is it kind of forces you to oversave in order to build a cushion of error. 
And so that leads us to the second model, which is a cash flow-based model. Okay, so explain how that's different from the traditional model. So a cash flow-based model is much simpler because it doesn't require the same number of assumptions. So I can go into the assumptions here in a second if you want me to. Sure. But the, the cash flow-based model is simply your cash flow from your assets exceeds your spending needs and therefore you're infinitely wealthy. And so you don't have to bring in things like your life expectancy assumption, right? So let's go through some of these assumptions for a second. You know, like a life expectancy assumption, you're supposed to estimate when you and your spouse are going to die. Now, the problem with that is nobody knows, right? Right. You, right? you and I could die tomorrow. We could die today on this interview. We could die 30 years from now, right? And neither one has a greater probability than the other for a sample size of one, which is our lifespan. Probabilities only work for life, for life expectancy for large organizations like insurance companies and IRS uh, it doesn't work for people like you and me when we have to plan a retirement. And so what that does is that forces us to assume a very long lifespan, which forces us to assume the largest required uh, number of assets. And so that's an example of you know one of the assumptions and how you have to work around it. You can't use life expectancy tables. You can't use averages. You can't use anything like that because you have to assume – the very longest possible outcomes that you don't outlive your assets, and that forces you to oversave. Which is um, what a lot of people are doing, right? A lot of people are living their assets because they haven't built up enough assets to sustain them in, in life. That's been a big problem now. Correct, yeah. If you don't plan properly, you'll do that. Another, but another aspect of the, but if you do the cash flow-based model, you don't have that worry because you just live within your cash flow and you're fine. No. And you never spend the principal of the assets. Now, it's a higher threshold to achieve but it's extremely stable and robust because it doesn't require any of these arcane assumptions like life expectancy. Or another one is return on investment equation. For example, let's say you've got a portfolio of houses that you rent. Maybe you're living off of four or five rental houses that you've acquired over many years. Those four or five rental houses continue to throw off income as long as you never you know, run them down, you maintain them, you take care of them. You'll never spend the roof shingles or the doors or the sink, right? You're not spending a portion of the house the house yeah. remains intact and always produces rental income as long as it's maintained. So what are some ways for people who are already retired, who are in their 60s and 70s, to maintain their cash flow once they're not doing their job anymore? Well, it depends on what you – first of all, the simple answer is you can develop earned income, which sounds antithetical to retirement. But now we're going to go into the very definition of what's a fulfilling life, right? Because there's a presumption behind all this that you and I are talking about. And the presumption is that this money only, nobody really cares about having more money, right? The only reason we want more money is because we believe it will lead to a more fulfilling life. We believe it will help our lives in some way. And so when you get down to what do people do in their 60s, most people will find that traditional retirement isn't terribly satisfying. Yeah. And so that takes them toward this idea of part-time work, stint work, developing an encore career, things like that. Particularly for baby boomers who've been active their whole lives, they're retiring now and find they're going to avoid in many cases. So what, what is a better way while you're still working but anticipating retirement in the next 10 years or so to kind of do that transition uh, so that it's smooth instead of kind of putting yourself into a vacuum? Yeah, exactly. What you want to do is, the way I like to say it is you want to start working towards retiring towards something, not retiring away from what you're currently in. The mistake and where people end up dissatisfied is they build this kind of myth of what retirement will look like. And typically, the way people view retirement 
is they they think of their two week vacation and then they think of that extended out infinitely. Like life's going to be fulfilling on this perpetual vacation. And of course it's not. What happens is after the honeymoon period, which typically lasts three to six months, and you start realizing that this endless vacation is now your life and that you're living it that way, um, it may sound ideal from the perspective of working really hard, but it's actually not very fulfilling for most people and particularly people who are able to you know, build substantial assets and have goals and things like that. And so you start working towards this idea of what's fulfillment and how do you create a fulfilling life in retirement. And that includes things like community, connection, sense of purpose, contribution. And all these terms often connect to work or encore careers or you know, different occupations they can get into. And so surprisingly, a fulfilling, uh, what I'll call second career life, uh, can actually be a fulfilling retirement. So for a lot of people, particularly their kind of self-worth is tied up in their work and their identity is tied up in that. And when yeah. they just get too old to do it anymore or they get forced out, you know, uh, with or without their permission <laughs> or, or agreement, um, how do they find something that's just as fulfilling and financially rewarding as what they've been used to for so many years? Well, it's very challenging, Jordan. Uh, there's there's no simple answers to that question because, like, I'll, I'll use doctors as an example. They're used to the acclaimed position of being a doctor, of being respected, having a high income, you know, all the things that go with the prestige of being a doctor. And so when they let go of that doctor position, suddenly they're just Jordan or just Todd, right? right? They're no longer Dr. Jordan or Dr. Todd or anything like that. They don't have that moniker in front. And so that prestige is gone and that self-identity is gone. When you identify yourself with your career, it sets up for a downfall in retirement. You have to develop a different self-identity. And it has to be done over time. It's not something you do instantly. It's got to be a transition so that it's not jumping into this void, right? Yeah, ideally it is. Uh, unfortunately, seldom is it done that way for people that are heavily devoted their careers. Um, what you can do is you can do a phased uh, career where you phase out of your career as opposed to cold turkey it. And yeah. what that does, it's very nice is it gets rid of all that irritation around um, losing your identity and allows you enough time in your life. The problem is people that are career oriented, they don't have enough time in their life to have other identities other than, than their career. And so when you phase that retirement in, so for example, let's use the doctor I was just referring to as an example. He might go down to 50% time. So he's still a doctor. He's still practicing his profession. But what we do now is we phase him down. And with all that extra time, he starts redefining himself, developing new interests, and finding out where he wants to go for that next stage of life so he doesn't go in cold turkey and deal with all those emotional issues. Very good. Yeah, going cold turkey is not easy. In, in drugs or retirement, I guess you might say. <laughs> all right, we're going to take a break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Todd Tresseter. Uh, he is a financial coach a financial journalist as well. He's written a lot of articles and a lot of books. His website, you can find out more, is financialmentor.com. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. 
Attention heroes, current and former firefighters, law enforcement, military, medical, or educational professionals. Heroes can receive rewards averaging over $2,500 when they buy, sell, or refinance a home. Heroes come first. Along with the Homes for Heroes is the nation's largest hero reward program. Their mission is to provide extraordinary savings to heroes who provide extraordinary services to our nation and its communities every day. Learn how you can purchase a home for no down payment, no closing costs, and get money back at closing. Find out how you can own for less than you may pay for rent. Get your hero rewards at heroescomefirst.com. That's heroes, H-E-R-O-E-S, comefirst.com, 888-437-6114. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Do you or someone you love have a life insurance policy that's no longer needed or not affordable? Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. Call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements. Discover the true value of your life insurance. 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Todd Tresseter. He is a retirement planning specialist financial coach. His website, you can find out more, is at financialmentor.com. Welcome back to the show, Todd. Thanks, Jordan. So one of the important things we were talking about was creating cash flow in retirement, and it's not only from traditional investments. There are alternatives that people can do. So why don't you go through some of the alternatives that would make sense for people to create cash flow in retirement? Right. So there's only three asset classes that you can work with that I, I do broad generalization here. So um, you've got direct owned real estate, which is not to be confused with REITs, which I would categorize as a paper asset. And you've got um, direct ownership of business, so business entrepreneurship. And then you've got paper assets, which is most other stuff. So stocks, bonds, mutual funds, uh, ETFs, cash instruments, CDs, you know, all the life insurance, all those different things, annuities, et cetera, et cetera. Those would all be categorized as paper assets. And so some assets are lend themselves better to uh, cash flow than others. So for instance, real estate and business can be structured in a way to produce cash flow and will typically provide a higher return on equity than say a straight paper asset yield. So let's talk about physical real estate first. So again, we're talking about somebody pre-retired or retired who's got some capital. Should they go out and buy a portfolio of rental properties near where they are or around the country or how should they go about using physical real estate to produce cash flow? Yeah, I wish it lent itself to a simple answer, but the problem is it's going to vary a lot with your location. Um, you're dealing with two trade-offs as a real estate and direct real estate investor. You're dealing with um, 
what what is the valuation relative to the cash flow in your area, right? And then if you if you is not good in your area, so for instance, let's let's take a California investor. California yeah. notoriously high priced real estate. Um, most areas in California, not all, but most areas in California are what I'll call a premium market where they are not positive cash flow real estate markets, even at record low interest rates that we have today as we record this in uh, March of 2018. And so um, those people often have to look out to other markets. And now, th- now it gets to the second challenge, which is when you invest out of town, your property by definition will operate less efficiently unless you have some sort of competitive advantage in management. Um, and that is just the nature of the beast. I, I wish I could say it differently that you could just hire a professional management company. They'll take care of everything for you and run it like you would. Um, but I would be lying. Um, I've been through this myself a lot uh, with my own properties. And I found tremendous, just extraordinary, almost unbelievable inefficiency with professional management companies, both in their ability to turn units over in how they how cost efficiently they run the operation, et cetera, et cetera. Now, just like with financial planners, you can't make a garden variety statement. You can't make a blanket statement painting all property managers as bad or all financial advisors as conflicted. Um, there are people that are doing their level best to provide great services, and there are some good ones out there. Just don't be blind. Understand that if you're going to have professional property management because you own out of town, Plan on inefficiency. Plan on more inefficiency than you can even imagine planning on. So, okay. So, if say you're in an area that's a high cost area, you're in Seattle or San Francisco or someplace where you have negative cash flow from real estate because the the prices are so high, the rents aren't going to really work for you. What are you supposed to do if, unless you want to move? Uh, if if you you know the, the deals, the positive cash flow are out of town properties. How do you deal with that? Well, some people are still doing value add deals in high priced areas. So give an example, um, maybe you buy a four unit building that also has a basement and an attic space that wasn't being utilized that you can convert to rental rental space. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you buy a four unit building that's sitting on a lot and it includes an adjacent lot that isn't developed that you could develop into a mini storage to go with it or a value add that includes garages and additional units or something. So there's you've, you're going to have to look for kind of entrepreneurial opportunities on the side of the real estate in order to add value and figure out inefficiencies that you can exploit. Another common one I hear of is larger properties that have mother-in-law quarters on them that can be subdivided or just rented as separate units. I mean, this um, takes a lot of assets. This takes a lot of capital to buy and develop and build all these real estate properties you're talking about. So this is not for everybody. Well, it doesn't take any more capital than it does to retire the traditional way. It's, yeah. it's you know, they're both capital intensive. It, here's the thing, both with real estate and paper assets, is ultimately the cash flow that you're producing is, you know, a function of the equity you have in the property, yeah. right? So you either create the equity or you buy the equity, but one way or another, you're get, you're dealing with a return on equity equation for your cash flow. And it's the same thing in paper assets too. You're getting a certain amount of return on your equity and it depends on the asset class you're in, right? So in bonds, you get a certain yield based on interest rates, net of inflation, and in stocks, you've got dividends and, you know, so anyway, you're getting these returns on equity equations regardless in both direct ownership of real estate and paper assets. So the other alternative you talk about is owning a business. So again, say you're retired or pre-retired. Uh, is this a business you have to know something about? Are you talking about buying a franchise? Or what kind of business uh, can people get into in their retirement years uh, 
which is going to produce cash flow, which is not going to wear them out. Well, it's going to depend on the individual. See, a true a true economist's answer, right, Jordan? It depends. Um, yes. <laughs> on one hand, on the other hand, as they always say, yes. Right. So it depends on the individual and what skills you bring to the equation um, and what personal assets you bring to the equation, right? So if you happen to have had specialized expertise in a certain field that lends itself to some sort of business entrepreneurship dream, then that would point a direction for you in terms of a business. Maybe you don't have that. Maybe you just love the idea of entrepreneurship. Maybe a franchise might make sense. You're going to have to analyze it and figure out what works for you in your area. And given on your expertise, there is not a clear answer on that so to where I can just paint a you know black and white, do this. But what you're saying is you should bring the specific skills that you have, what you worked on, your knowledge of a particular industry or something, you shouldn't go into something you haven't been connected to at all. Is that what you're Absolutely. saying? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, th this is just common sense, right? We live in a competitive market environment, and you're going to compete. If you want to get a return on equity equation, if you want to make money, you're going to compete, and you have to have a competitive advantage. And so you want to, that's the starting point, really. That would be the succinct answer. You've got to figure out where your competitive advantage is, um, and that's where you're going. that's where you're going to build your business from. Yeah. Okay. Now, you it, on your website on financialmanner.com, you have a lot of different areas. I just want to touch on some of them briefly. You've got a whole area on investment fraud prevention, for example. Yeah. What are some of the most common frauds that retirees or pre-retirees fall for that uh, you can warn them against? Well, the one I'd most like to warn against is what I'll call uh, familiar association. So you know somebody or you have a friend where this often propagates is through churches and mm -hmm. social organizations, where somebody who's a really good person and possibly even highly respected within that organization is sold a bag of goods on a given investment, and then that person goes out and propagates that investment. Excuse me, I'm going to cough. <coughs> that person goes out and propagates that investment by telling others within the association, people have implied trust for this individual, but yet this guy may not be an investment expert. And he yep. may have been hoodwinked and be unknowingly propagating a fraud. And I saw that quite prevalent. The other one is what I'll call another one that's really common is kind of a form of a Ponzi scheme where the first people that get in make a whole lot of money. And that's an intentional marketing tactic where what happens is something that's fundamentally flawed, the, person, the first few people get in and make a ton of money, and then they go out and tell everybody in the world because they want to show how smart they are you know, that they made all this money with this little scam idea. And so they tell a bunch of people and then the next, you know, the next round might make money, multiplies again, and it's the round after that that gets slaughtered, right? So you think it was, there are it, some it, of those out there today that haven't been discovered yet? I mean, Madoff went on for like 50 years before people figured out it was a Ponzi. So you think there are a lot of unexposed, uh, I guess you might say, uh, Ponzi's and similar frauds today? Yeah. In general, anytime you're outside the regulated investment environment, you have to be very careful and you can't assume things. Most of the time where people get nailed for fraud is when they start making assumptions. You know, they assume that because their friend did it, it's okay. Or they assume that because Joe, their buddy made money with it, then it must be real. And they start making these assumptions without doing thorough due diligence. And that's usually where the error occurs. You can still get investment fraud in the regulated investment area, so, for example, you had Enron was a fraud, and MCI had accounting fraud. So you can, so large corporations can still be fraud, but that's relatively uncommon, and it usually occurs 
late stages of major bull markets. Um, and then once the bull market rolls over in a bear market, then the fraud becomes evident. And you'll see that in both those examples I gave. Um, so is that where we are, are now? If, if I may ask, is that where we are now at the late stages of a bull market where there are going to be frauds expo exposed? Yeah, I actually have a post on my site you can link to. I wrote bubbles, bubbles everywhere. You know, risk management is now key. And so you can link to that post. I wrote it and within one day of the recent top, and it basically um, explains that the risk profile going forward is that even if the market goes up to new highs, those new highs will be short-lived relative to the sudden downfalls that will erase them. And that from here going forward, at least for the foreseeable future, you're going to have to really focus on risk management to manage your assets. So what are some examples maybe of two bubbles that you think were about to pop now? Two bubbles about to pop now? Well, I wrote it back in January, right? Was, I wrote, I published it January 27th, the bubbles. Well, that was good, good timing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, I mean, um, it was like I, I explained how the, the whole Bitcoin thing and uh -huh. the cryptocurrency thing made no economic sense at all. Um, I think, I think the, um, the whole technology behind it is brilliant and will make a huge impact. But the analogy I give, you and I both lived through this, Jordan, the internet bubble back in 2000 yes. top, mm -hmm. where you know the dot-com stocks, they got slaughtered, but yet the internet went on to fulfill its, you know, its destiny. And it's the same thing here, where um, the, you know, the technology behind cryptocurrencies will go on to fulfill its destiny and be a huge change, but many cryptocurrencies are going to vanish or be a fraction of their worth. Okay, so the blockchain is going to work, but the, bit, the bitcoins of the world are not. And what would be one other bubble uh, that you, you think may be in the process of bursting? Well, I wrote in 2013 that the, the, the bond market is the world's largest bubble and pointed out that, again, I do everything based on risk management mathematical expectancy, so it's not necessarily an exact forecast. But what I, what I explained was that bonds basically have no positive expectancy net of inflation. There's no reason to allocate to them at all. And I wrote that almost at the exact peak in 2013. And so to this day, that still remains accurate um, and should only become more accurate with time. And so that, again, you can link to that on there. That's uh, the bond bubble is here, what to do next. And I published that in, I think, March or April of 2013, almost at the exact peak of interest rates before they came backward. Great. All right, we're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Todd Tresseter. He is a retirement planning specialist. His website is financialmentor.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Looking for an investment option? Consider Secured Real Estate Income Strategies. Secured Real Estate Income Strategies is a real estate-backed option offering investments with a monthly income objective. The goal of the strategy is to lend money to real estate developers. SREIS offers an 8% preferred return per annum, plus a share in any profits. While there is risk, including loss of capital, and you should carefully read the offering circular for full details, Secured Real Estate Income Strategies screens each real estate loan carefully. Call 888-444-2102 or visit securedrealestatefunds.com to learn more. 888-444-2102. 
Jordan Goodman is an advisor to and part owner in Secured Real Estate Income Strategies. This does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any securities. Securities offered through North Capital Private Securities, member FINRA, SIPC. Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? Paying off your home in full in five to seven years is really possible thanks to Truth in Equity's Mortgage Equity Optimization System, a money management approach that puts your money to work for you 24-7. If you own a home with some equity, have a decent credit score and verifiable income, you owe it to yourself to learn more about Truth in Equity's program. There's no need to replace your mortgage or refinance in many cases. The system works for new home purchases as well as current mortgages. Your home is your largest investment. Own it outright in five to seven years. Call Truth and Equity, 888-262-5540 or visit truthandequity.com, 888-262-5540. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Todd Tresseter. He's a financial coach. He's the author at financialmentor.com and a financial journalist as well. Welcome back to the show, Todd. Thanks, Jordan. We were talking about bubbles, and the whole concept of risk management is really important when there is a lot of risk. The stock market's had a huge run. Bond market's had a huge run for a long time. Cryptocurrencies soared and then plunged. So how do you manage risk in this very volatile environment? One of the things that I want to separate this from is the idea of market timing, risk management market timing. It's something that people get confused because effectively they cause the same thing. They can cause you to exit a market. Um, and so people call that market timing, but I don't view it that way. Um, so let me give you a little track record. Like I sold, uh, I ran the hedge fund back in 87 for the 87 crash and I'd sold all the assets. I don't remember the exact date, but it was like two weeks before the decline, you know, before the record day, right? Because yeah. there was a decline that led up to it, right? Yes. Um, I sold all my ass. I, I exited from the stock market and moved over to real estate in 98. Now that was two years early on the stock market. And I since learned some things since that would have caused me to be a little more accurate on that one, but it was early in my career. Um, I sold all my investment real estate and I had a lot. I mean, I had hundred and 160 apartment units. I had a bunch of houses had some land, had a bunch of stuff. I sold everything down to just the house I live in in 2006, which was about a year before the decline began in real estate that was a record breaker. It had never occurred before. Um, and then I, rec- I have a published post on my side about the bond bubble. That one's dated. And then I have the most recent one of bubbles, bubbles Everywhere, dated January 27th. Um, so how do I do that? It, it's not a forecast per se. What happens is... Most of the time, you know, you got this whole idea of markets are random walk theory, right? You're familiar with all that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you've got this random walk theory idea, but it's not really totally true. Um, it's true a lot of the time. It's true often enough that it passes the smell test and it passes academic research standards. 
But the reality is there's great information value at the extremes of price movement. And so when you hit certain extremes in, in types of price movement as well as valuation metrics, you can set yourself up for highly statistically significant mean reversion, um, which is like a kind of a fancy term for just saying that the market's going get, to get a bear market, right? And so these are bubbles, and you learn ways to identify bubbles. And so I explain it again in that post on my site. I give kind of ancillary evidence, but there's also I have a lot of um, technical methodology too that ties in with the ancillary evidence. And when it comes together, it's it's highly statistically significant. And the thing about it, Jordan, that is worth understanding here, because this is going to fly in the face of buy and hold and traditional asset allocation, you know, because you're not supposed to be able to do this, and yet I have a track record of doing it for what 30 years now through almost every major bubble we've had. If not, I think every major bubble. I just haven't tried to quantify it, but I believe every major bubble I've I've done correctly. Um, and so it flies in the face of traditional teachings. But again, it's just it's pretty straightforward when you understand it, it has to do with extreme price movement. So you're you're saying in all these cases, stocks before the two thousand dot com bubble, real estate, now you think cryptocurrencies and bonds and to some extent stocks. It's just there Well no, the the bubbles everywhere is bonds, stocks, real estate. I wasn't even focusing on cryptocurrency because cryptocurrency to me is like an interesting little sideshow because yeah. it's such a small asset class. It's so inconsequential. It's in such early development that it doesn't really matter if it's a bubble or not because it's not going to have any large impact economically. Yeah. Um, it was just an interesting side note to point out that we had severe speculation going on. The fact right. that people would exchange effectively the value of a, a new car for this ethereal thing called a Bitcoin, which you know came from someone's imagination in the dark recesses of their hard drive, um, is almost beyond comprehension. It has no <laughs> income yield. It has no business value. It has no fundamental anything related to what an asset would qualify as. I guess you're not putting all your money into Bitcoin mining then, huh? as a lot of other people are these days. No. No, <laughs> but, I, but I'm pointing out what a speculative fever that is, right? That yes. is all all criteria of a speculative fever. And it doesn't mean that people can't make money with Bitcoin. Just understand that it's a pure speculation, pure yep. speculation. And there's a lot of big trump cards playing out on cryptocurrency that people aren't aware of. Yes. So, um, okay. So if we have a bubble in bonds, in real estate and stocks, does that mean that you're keeping a lot of money in cash now? Or if you anticipate that bubble, how do you handle that? Well, what I pointed out in the article is that there's several ways to practice risk management. You can shift assets toward, you can reallocate over to lower volatility assets as an example, You which you can uh, go to liquidity, which is what you're talking about, moving towards cash. You can dilute your portfolio so you can move more towards bonds. You could shift your portfolio towards favorably valued assets. For example, I point out in the article, commodities is the only asset class that hasn't bubbled yet. Um, all their asset classes have bubbled except commodities. They've gone the opposite way and are, and are quite deflated. Um, there's a lot of different things you can do. You're not stuck with just one thing. You can go towards – here's another one that a lot of people don't talk about. You can go towards what I call microeconomy assets, which ties back to what we talked earlier. Business entrepreneurship and local real estate isn't necessarily driven by the macroeconomy. It can be driven by microeconomy fundamentals. Or if you do value-add deals in real estate, you can still make money even against a headwind of the market. Mm -hmm. And so these are all tactics and strategies you can employ despite – a, a an unfavorable backdrop in the larger economy or in the larger marketplace. Because you're saying people who are retired now, who have most of their assets 
in paper assets and stocks and bonds and and you know traditional mutual funds and so on they could get hurt pretty badly if this bubble breaks oh absolutely i think anybody investing in a traditional asset allocation has to recognize that it's entirely possible to experience a 50% decline in in valuation right even on you know so even like a 60 40 portfolio if you look at history um, if you're not anticipating and willing to tolerate a 50% decline in the value of your portfolio, then you've got the wrong strategy, right? Because it does do it occasionally. Um, so, so you're saying this one could be bigger than what happened in 2008, 2009, that the valuations are even higher now than they were leading into that? Uh, it's not that the valuations are higher, and I'm not predicting this bigger. Again, I don't predict anything. I just get out of the way of unfavorable risk-reward relationships. And so I'm saying the risk-reward relationship is unfavorable. I don't have a specific forecast about how big it can be, but let's just use common sense, Jordan. Of course it can be bigger. It could also be smaller, right? We yeah. don't know. We don't have a forecast for it. We just know that there's an unfavorable risk-reward ratio that no longer makes sense to allocate to those asset classes. In about two minutes we have left, why don't you kind of sum up that what you're talking about here and, and how to plan your retirement in a better way compared to the traditional model based on what we've spoken about here? Um, I th first of all, people, the traditional model is limited to, to an asset-based plan, and it's limited to a traditional paper asset portfolio. And so what I'm advocating is expanding the framework. And so moving towards a cash flow-based plan, which is more robust and less, less dependent upon optimization of variables that goes into traditional retirement planning, um, less dependent on assumptions that you can't honestly make or securely make. So you can look at a cash flow-based plan and you can expand to alternative assets such as direct ownership, real estate, and business entrepreneurship. Um, you can also expand the framework from traditional retirement, which is you do nothing of substance um, with your life, to consider creating income streams in retirement that create fulfillment, uh, contribution, uh, connection, sense of purpose in life. And you can do those in a way that you design them so you have all the lifestyle you want. Most people, if they have retirement, if they have uh, travel dreams in retirement, they might want to travel, you know, two months out of the year, three months out of the year. You can still run lifestyle businesses that allow you to travel three months out of the year. Mine is a perfect example. I travel three, three months out of the year on average, and I'm building a business. It's fun. Excellent. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Todd Tresseter. Uh, he is the author at financialmentor.com. He's written a lot of books, including one called How Much Money Do I Need to Retire? You can find out more about him at financialmentor.com. Thanks so much for being a great guest on The Money Answer Show, Todd. Thank you, Jordan. Thanks for having me. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.